Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Independent Life Podcast. I am so happy I finally got my Jane Johnson fix. Jane Johnson, she is the CEO of the Florida Association for Centers for Independent Living. We've had her on our show multiple times to primarily talk about what the Independent Living Network's efforts are at the state's capital. Of course, we've got to be very active in our legislature. We are funded through the Department of Education by way of our designated state entity, which is the Department of Vocational Rehabilitation. So our interactions with the state and other state agencies are very important. On this episode, we talk about some of the recent changes, the Department of Education, Department of Vocational Rehabilitation, and other levels within those, those states. But also, it's an election year. Election cycle's coming at the state of Florida here. The, the gubernatorial seat is up for grabs, as are many Senate and House seats. And we talk about how this influx and musical chairs of people that are up there at the state capitol and how to pivot and adapt and and really cultivate relationships is really the central part of advancing any of the causes that we really stand for within the legislature. And she goes in deep. I'm talking like, I'm, I, I took notes and I'm about ready to get with her and we're gonna co-author a book on the importance of cultivating relationships and some of the ingredients that are necessary for that. She goes into, well, it's important first when we're creating relationships within the legislature to not create enemies, to be patient, to listen and not talk so much, to really manage our time, to keep the end in mind so that we don't just try to win a battle or to be right in an argument or to speak our mind, to more think about the winning the war, if we're going to use battle analogies, but more or less that we are in it for the infinite game. And to, to not sacrifice, keeping the end in mind, as Stephen Covey would say, and really hold that in tight and to watch out and check our passions. Those of us that are in social justice and really advocating for, for the needs of people who are in crisis, we care a lot. We see the eyeballs, and when we meet with people that are decision makers and can pull the levers and push the buttons to make things happen, and they aren't, the passion can get the better of us. And instead, as Jane eloquently states, Rather, we should have strategic inspiration to be able to get to the end in mind. And so that is a very important thing that we talk about. And we get into some of the expansion that the Independent Living Network is going through. Jane has been very successful in helping to get us funding to do what we call adult transitions. That means getting people out of institutionalized care or preventing them from going into institutionalized care through providing any kind of service that we can to keep them in the community. And that can manifest in a lot of different services here at the Center for Independent Living of North Central Florida. We've been uh, expanding our wheelchair ramp building program for usable, reusable wheelchair ramps. But other centers have been doing some really great innovative things. We've also got funding to do home modifications, such as grab bars for bathrooms, wheel roll-in showers, all different kind of things to ensure that people can stay in their homes and to avoid any unnecessary institutionalized living facilities. And we talk about our relationship and our pilot with the Florida Department of Corrections, a very exciting program that we did three times over now and with inmates that are incarcerated, an employment readiness program, one that I think is truly innovative and delivered by an amazing person. So much positive feedback from the, the Department of Corrections on this and from the inmates that took this class. Truly revolutionary. And now we're looking at being be positioned to go from pilot to the next phase to expand this out into the state. There's a lot of talk and positivity behind this. And uh, we're hopefully going to be very soon here taking it to the advanced level and the, the advanced class. I'm just so excited for this to have this conversation with Jane. Uh, she's an amazing force of nature. I learned so much from her about how to change the system from within, to be a force for good, and how to be a, uh, do this by n not getting ourselves lost and selling out to the system, but being better because of it. And so I bring you our one, our only, Jane Johnson.
Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Independent Life Podcast. And I got to have my Jane Johnson fix. It's been too long. It's been way too long. I'm jonesing over here. So we're having Jane on to talk to us. Uh, this will broadcast, I think, in uh, September 22nd, uh, 2022. And it's a very interesting time to be checking in with Jane because we have so much popping off. Uh, regarding our statewide independent living network, uh, the legislation. There's a lot going on, gubernatorial races, Senate races, House races. The deck is going to get shuffled. We have new leadership. We have new funding opportunities. We have so much to get into. So thank you for joining us, Jane. Sure. I'm glad to be here, Tony. I've missed you. I've missed our conversation. I miss you too. Me too. Me too. Let's dive into some of the current changes that have already happened in leadership at the state, and then talk about how we're coming up on an election, literally within maybe six weeks, that's gonna have a lot of changes too, and what the implications are for our engagement with the state's legislature. Yeah, Tony, this is a busy time. And um, you know, I went back and looked at my calendar for September, 2021, and I was kind of shocked at where we were then and where we are now, the state of the state of independent living is not stasis. It's, uh, it's, it is moving and uh, the ground beneath our feet is moving without our, us participating in the action. So what happened, June 1st, um, a new commissioner of education was appointed. He, it's Commissioner Manny Diaz from Miami. He had been the chair of the Senate Education Committee and he had also served on education committees in the House. So he's a, a veteran legislator with a, a deep understanding of education. He's a former social studies teacher himself, a principal. He received a certificate in education from Harvard University. So he is he is a true, tried and true educator or education specialist. And of course, vocational rehabilitation is a division within the large Department of Education. So that matters to us, the leadership at the top of the agency that funds and, and, and administers the VR programs is new, um, not new to us because we knew him in the Senate, but new to the department. Also, um, the VR director resigned and was replaced probably back, I think it was in early May, Brent McNeil, who had worked at VR in the Office of General Counsel. He came in and replaced Allison Flanagan, who had been VR director for several years. So that was another change in personnel, personality, style, all the things that come along with, with leadership changes. Because as anyone who's led a, a, a program or, or an organization knows that you need to have a team around you who support your values and your vision for wh where you want to take your organization. And so we've seen changes within the VR leadership team as well. The deputy director resigned. Um, she has not yet been replaced, but we've got new faces in contract management and sprinkled throughout um, vocational rehabilitation. And all of that changes our interactions. As you know, the policies and the procedures and the funding are sort of the mechanisms that drive an organization, but really where the, where the rubber meets the road is in the relationships that you have with the various actors who are responsible for those policies and procedures and mechanisms. I would think that we've got a great fresh start with new leadership. Um, it's much, I sense a much more open communication style and willingness to partner. Of course, we'll always have our our struggles because they're the regulator and, and they're a state agency and state agencies tend to move at a glacial pace and uh -huh. centers for independent living are, they, they are constantly on the move and can't move fast enough to respond to consumer yeah. demand. So there's going to be an automatic disconnect in operating styles, but um, that's again, where SILs and their nimbleness come in, comes into play and their ability to understand and be patient and try to, improvise while yeah. we wait for the big state agencies to act. That's a great review there of uh, some of the changes in the deck. And why this matters to, to centers is that, you, like you were kind of saying, the Department of Education is overseeing the Department of Vocational Rehabilitation, which the Department of Vocational Rehabilitation is our designated state entity. Um, our funding flows through them. They oversee us. We're responsible and accountable to them, and they're responsible and accountable for the Department of Education. And it's a pretty massive uh, department there. And when I think about, it, like, you know, you got 67 counties, school districts, all the teachers, all the principals, all the school boards, all the 
Yeah, it's just so wide and deep. And then you throw the Department of Vocational Rehabilitation in there and other centers for independent living. And don't forget the state colleges and universities. Oh, They're all goodness. They're up under that umbrella, too. So massive is a good descriptor. Massive. It's such a big system. I, I, you know, I'm always struck by how you know, centers for independent living are navigating systems at all kinds of different levels. So it's wide. It's deep. You know, it's, 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 it's rotational. It's, it's so uh, like all over the place. And, you know, when I think about housing or the healthcare or the justice system, employment, and, and now like we're, we're in the department of like education. And like you were saying, it's a, it does take this nimbleness in this like hugely complex system uh, to be able to, to do it. And, and as you're mentioning in your summary there, it requires nimbleness, but it also hinges on relationships. So how how do we, like, and how have you, I guess, in your experience with the legislature, really cultivate and foster and sustain relationships when it's like musical chairs, you know, at the top, at the middle, at the bottom of any kind of bureaucracy? How, how do you do that? Well, the first thing is to try to not make enemies. You know, you've got to put aside some of your personal viewpoints bring a heavy dose of patience and um, be a good listener, be slow to speak and uh, quick to listen (laughs) because you never know when the person that you're talking to at like a mid-level bureaucrat position is going to wind up being the head of an agency or in another position. Also, you don't put too much stock in those personal relationships that you cultivate because they can change. And so really the, the important thing is to understand your end goal and don't let the, um, some of the smaller details get in the way of you achieving your end goal. I think I see so many times with advocates who have issues that they're very passionate about. They sort of try to win their passion, but lose their goal. You know, they lose the, if the ultimate race is to cross a finish line along the way, they stop too often to tell the people with holding the, at the water stops that they're holding the water the wrong way. And then they wind up losing the race because they, but they were right. And they made sure everybody was holding the water the right way or filling the water cups up with just enough water so that everybody got the same amount, but they lost the race in the process. So you're sort of grabbing defeat from the jaws of victory, in a, you know, but you're losing, you're, you're winning that little battle along the way. But in the end, that's not why you entered the race. And I think it's just easy to get caught up in that because victory can be so difficult to achieve along the way. There's so many, for every one victory, you're going to have a a hundred mini losses or insults. But again, it's just, it's really takes a discipline to focus on that end goal and sacrifice some of your righteousness, (laughs) not your, not your values and not your, um, your integrity, but sort of the temptation and want to be right and to want to prove, show people that they're wrong. You kind of put that aside, you, you know, save that for that conversation you have with yourself in the car on the way to work or (laughs) at the mirror. But when you're in that office, just um, be positive, be non-judgmental and remember that, um, you know, you don't control all the, the pieces of the puzzle. So you need to cede that control over to the people who do. I'm over here taking notes on you, Jane. Like you have enough material and talking points here to write a book. You know, like I was thinking, as you were mentioning, you know, keeping the end in mind. That was one of the points I think you were making there is like, you know, like with Stephen Covey, like start with the end in mind, work backwards and not to lose ourselves in these everyday little bit of uh, skirmishes that we can get in. And it then had me thinking about Simon Sinek, which I totally stole his start with why. That's not me. And he talks also about another principle that's it's the infinite game. Don't lose sight that there's no finish line to this kind of work that we're doing. And don't get caught up and be a prisoner of the moment you know, trying to be right, trying to be righteous, like you're saying, you know, there seems to be a bit of, I, I think what I hear in there is ego that we all have uh, in wanting to be right. And, and Well, so- and the work you do, Tony, the work the SILs do is not that, I mean, it's gratifying in a very um, sort of uh, fundamental way, but along the way, you you take a lot of hits. And so it can be really tempting to want to get some, score some, some points. Yeah. Want to, you know, assuage your, your bruised ego because you had six consumers call and complain first or tell you their problems. You're absorbing all their, you know, that's vicarious trauma you're absorbing. Yeah. And then if you can just get one little win, it's very tempting. And it's, I'm not saying that it's easy, but if you want to take that Simon Sinek approach and, um, and think about why am I here to begin with it, yep. it's to fix to, to do to try to achieve systemic change, not daily change or, or daily uh, corrections of, of one person or one 
program. That's a really good point because like, you know, we're on the front line and we're seeing it and we need these resources now. We don't have the resources now. And we're, we're looking into the eyeballs of people and taking their stories home with us. And when we are in front of somebody that can pull some levers to make it happen, and for whatever reason it's not on that day, it is hard to do that ego repair and, and uh, be able to check ourselves. And that, like, as you let off, you know, I really like how you started. Like, rule number one, don't make enemies. I, I really, really, really love that rule. Um, you know, especially because, I mean, like, I don't want to have enemies and I don't want to be anyone's enemy. And, and I think we just live in a, a, in a, in a culture now, whether it's political or, or otherwise, that we're, it's so easy to get caught up in the offending, being offended, and that cycle of doing that and, and creating enemies. And, and it causes, you know, so much friction and, and things never it, – it's a terrible – it's almost like a form of violence in a way, you know, that I almost see it. I love how you said patience. That kind of connects us back to that infinite game. But um, listening – one thing, I, I heard this advice today when maybe we're being yelled at or talked to disrespectfully to still listen and to maybe before we respond, drink some water. It's hard to, you know, to, to, you know, before we even talk, you know, we can't talk and drink water at the same time. And water right. has a way of equilibrating, yeah. you know, cooling ourselves off. And the more time we can give to that stimulus, to that response, that's where our freedom lies, according to Viktor Frankl. And like maybe the more distance we can give in that sense, the better. Yeah, no, I totally agree, but it's completely antithetical to the way people communicate um, now. Like you said, you don't even have to open your mouth. You just have to do a tweet, you know, or respond on social media <laughs> right. and, and you feel like you won momentarily, but really you're losing that infinite game in the long run. Yeah. And I, I tell my daughters, you know, when they were starting um, their work, I said, be that employee that everybody wants to you know, to be around. Like trust, just try to be that person around the table or in the office that listens, is funny, is fun, is right. um, you know, just ultimately, I think if you can just put away some of the your righteous indignation, you, you have a right to it because um, the disability world is not where it needs to be. Um, disability rights is not a, an achieved goal yet. We still have a lot of work to do. So it's easy to be angry and to vent it, but it's not really, it's not going to get us where we need to go uh, yeah. if we're, we're setting those long range goals. So along the way, we have to have a sense of humor. Humor is awesome. Yeah. Some people don't get it. They just, they don't, they don't walk in your shoes and they don't understand what you've been through. And they can seem like heartless insensitive people as you're having a conversation trying to explain how important this one particular need is and they it seems that they don't they have no empathy at all but um just don't give up and just keep coming back with a smile yeah. they'd be willing to believe that it eventually will pay off that faith and that belief it's it's so important especially during the darkest hours but I want to go back to something I think that you said that that really I think also is very important is like passion can get us in trouble you know, I find that like for myself and others that are into like causes of the heart and, you know, see marginalized people and really want to do something about it, we can become passionate. In the recent years, I've, I've really had a reorientation to what passion is and passion versus inspiration. So I've come to more or less learn that passion can be this kind of unbridled, untamed, a lot of energy kind of a force where it's almost like someone in a car pushing on the gas and the brakes at the same time. And we could be spinning our wheels and super passionate and, and it can take us into places without our total control into it. You know, so for instance, like a lot of times people will be interviewing the team that just won the game and they're very, well, how did they win coach? Well, we were passionate or that mountain climber that got to the top of the mountain. How did you get up there? It's because I was passionate. It's kind of like this survivorship bias that losing team they were passionate too, but they lost. Right. And, and there's many climbers that never make it to the summit. And if we look at, you know, Mount Everest, how many bodies are along there of passionate people? There were a lot of passion and passion can cloud our judgment. So there's a survivorship bias, I think, with understanding passion. To me, inspiration is more purpose driven. You know, where purpose isn't about me or my ego. I think passion is more about ego and individualism. And purpose and inspirations for the broader cause. And I think in, in the areas of human services or social justice, I think that nuance matters. And I, I would add a word to the inspiration. I would say it, it's got to be strategic inspiration. Right. 
because yeah. you can be inspired, but if you don't have a, you know, your inspiration is your, the ingredient that you need, but if you don't have a, have a recipe to channel that inspiration, then you're not, you know, the cake is going to flop. Yeah. But you really do need to know how to put those, those it's, it's alchemy, you know, you need to put those different things together in the right way with an understanding of who your audience is. Right. You know, to, and to get really bad on these stupid analogies. But if you've got a gluten intolerant audience and you're put, you're baking a, a loaf of bread uh-huh. with your inspiration, it's it's going to make that person ill or they're not going to be able to eat. So you really do need to know your audience and know the system that you're operating in so that you can be just as strategic as the people around you. And it's, it's not just as simple as making someone aware of this urgent need that you have. That's that's just one piece of it. There's I a whole it. constellation of things that, that need to accompany the acknowledgement of the need to get you to where the need gets fulfilled. Strategic inspiration. And yeah, it's kind of like putting up the, the ladder against the wrong wall or climbing up the mount, wrong mountain. We might do it with inspiration, but what, what, what good is it if it's in the wrong place? Right. Putting a billboard in the wrong street, in the wrong neighborhood. Yeah. So, you know, you're not going to get the, the effect that you need out of that billboard because you just didn't know who lived there. <laughs> exactly. And, and speaking of which, if we're putting up election years, you know, signs, you know, in the wrong neighborhood and uh, we're inspired, uh, you know, to get people elected and everything else like that. I'm trying to segue into the fact that this is an election year. Yeah, it is. And so we've we've already had these changes in, in state agencies and leaderships. And, uh, you know, we're, we're recognizing all the different ingredients that, that need to be able to go along with adapting and you know, rolling with the punches and, you know, the important ingredients for relationship building. How is it uh, that you go in and try to then come out of an election year where, where no matter what, the deck's going to get shuffled? A lot of things are out of our control onto what happens. And, and so I don't know, how does a person with your experience, you know, really kind of uh, feel about going into and through this election cycle? I think, you know, having been at this for a long time, one of the things that's important is to not be associated with certain legislators or certain political parties. I don't think I am associated with a party, you know, when people see me or talk to me, but but I am associated with a, a cause, which is independent living for the past three and a half years. You know, that to me is, that is the one thing and it's disability, uh, pe- you know, supporting people with disabilities to live as independently as possible. And that that's a constant, that doesn't change no matter who I'm talking to, no matter who the, we're making a funding request of, the needs are the same. And I think that gives you some of that credibility so that you're not, I'm not a hired gun where, you know, whoever's paying me, I'm, I'm, this is the issue. I, you know, pharmaceutical company one day or an HMO the other day or a hospital another day. Mm. It is, it's, you know, I, my, my allegiance is constant and, and unchanging. And I've been fortunate over the course of my career, I've been representing organizations that are predominantly not-for-profit serving at risk and underserved populations. So um, so I think that's important. And it's, you know, the, the, the hired lobbyists are important because they're the ones who write checks to campaigns and get that influence and open and open those doors. It's really important, though, to, behind that to have subject matter experts who have proven, you know, a proven loyalty to whatever the organization is. And I think that's that's the most important thing for me. That's to me is the asset I bring to into the room. And, and that requires me to do a lot of educate myself and to understand independent living, to understand centers for independent living, what they need, how the funding streams work. It's not enough just to ask for money. It's a, we need to be, I need to be able to say with this funding, this is how it will be used and this will be the impact in the Mm. community. And this is how it will, you know, impact other systems of care because people are living more independently. They're less needy or they're less reliant on these other more expensive systems. So understanding all the pieces and parts at the macro level and how they intersect so that you're not just asking for on behalf of your issue, you're able to see how it's part of the larger constellation or um, ecology of or ecosystem of of services. And I think that that is important because everybody asks for money. Right. Um, 
but if you can tell that larger story and show the connection that will cascade into broader positive impacts, I think that does resonate because legislators get hounded every session with requests uh -huh. for funding. And, and I hear them say all the time, like, what are we going to, everybody says, if you do this, we won't have to do this, but we keep spending more money. So the, the pile just gets deeper, you know, higher and higher. So show us some, some return. And with the strategic approach we've taken, this, you know, the, the Centers for Independent Living has take, have taken to their requests, we have been able to show return and have been able to show that people are in the community and not in nursing homes because of the interventions that they're able to provide with funding. So so I like that you're, you know, especially when you were leading off talking about the importance of being apolitical and more like about the, the, the subject, the topic to represent, like you said, a, a very stable cause for nonprofits and, you know, other human services that you're that you're working with. And, and as you're saying all that, one thing that really jumps out to me is like being able to to zoom out and see the big picture and zoom in and see the small picture. I guess that's what kind of like what we we're talking about with relationships. But that is so key, I think. And that's where I think, you know, I attribute it, you know, in part your success is you understand the mechanisms behind uh, what needs to happen in order to receive the funding. The ask is very important in getting to that point. But knowing when, how, and how it all flows and trickles, oh, man, that's very key. And to integrate those kind of things together, I think it's been largely part and parcel to your success, wouldn't you say? Well, yeah. I, basically, what you're saying is that I'm a geek, and I am. And yeah. I love that stuff. I love getting, you know, putting my head under the hood and figuring out yeah. where all the, the things are. I, I'm a junkie. I'm a legislative junkie. I love this, how the system, figuring out how this, I don't say, I would never say I love the system because the system is terrible. But you love learning. I, I love learning about it, figuring it out, making phone making calls, meeting yeah. people. So I think, you know, part, like with so many things, having sort of a insatiable curiosity is really important because it forces you to dig deep and um, look into things. And I don't consider that work. I consider that I get, that's, that's where my dopamine fix comes in when I <laughs> like uncover things under rocks or make associations. Um, so yeah, I, I just, it's, it's important to get, um, put yourself in the right position so that you, your work is rewarding to you. And that is definitely rewarding to me. Well, geek is chic, right? Like it's in, you know, and, and, and I think that's like, you know, golly, you know, this is kind of funny. It's just coming to my mind. But I remember um, when I was just starting out in teaching of all things and I went to, golly, who was it? It was of all people. I was going to see a speech at the university by Ice-T. Wow. <laughs> and I was just starting out and I was just like, you know, what what is, what is some advice you have for somebody that's going into teaching who is closer in age to the students than I'm, I am, you know, now colleagues of the other teachers who are like decades older than me. And he, he said something along the lines, I think of what you're saying. He was like, learn the system, infiltrate the system. If you want to fix the system, become a part of it and change it from the inside out. Right. And I thought that was like beautiful advice. It was kind of like someone who, especially at the time was kind of like anti-establishment, anti-authority, you know, fight the power, you know, kind of thing was talking about the best way to do it is to be, become part of the system. You know, you right. don't have to like the system, but, but learn how it works. You know, if yeah. you want to change the rules in which the system operates under, you almost have to infiltrate the system, learn the system, abide by the system. Then we can come from a place of understanding the best ways to fix the system. It's such good. And no, gosh, that is such great advice. And it, it has been so true in my life you know, spending a couple of years working inside the governor's office, working inside a, a state agency. I just, yeah, I, I learned things I never would have learned from the outside. Right. It's, in, it's invaluable because that's, that's how stuff gets, that's how stuff happens. How, and so often advocates find themselves standing on the outside wondering what happened? Yeah. Because they, you know, they, they entered through the wrong door because they didn't know what, where the doors were. And there's mm -hmm. no one out there waving a flag saying, hey, this is the way to do it because yeah. it's a really cutthroat competitive environment to, to try to get your issues passed or get your funding allocated. So it, it's so needed. I think it is easier to almost like want to, you know, and it's kind of talk about geek chic, but it's almost kind of like the end thing to be the outsider, you know, to try and tear the system down from the outside versus being an insider 
and doing the work from the inside out. But it's almost like you got to become a subject you know, matter expert of the system in order to really change the system because they're so ingrained and they're so established. You know, I guess it's kind of a, I don't know, it, it is kind of a cool notion to think about, well, we just tear the systems down and rebuild from scratch, but that's just not reality, I don't think. No, you know, if we not. do something like that, it could bring everything down. You know, that's just anarchy. Right. You know, probably doesn't do anyone good if we just kind of burn the whole thing down, which, you know, there's been times where I felt like that. Just, yeah, but at the, at the end of the day, you know, we really do have to almost go in and change from within on the inside. Yeah, out. no. So every legislative session, I read through the, the bills that come out that have anything to do with health and human services or, or disability or independent living. And I'll just right off the bat, say, that's never going to happen. That's never good. Like uh -huh. some of the bills get filed. You think, what were they thinking? Like that doesn't even make sense, but it's because people are trying to take down a system or change a system without understanding how it works to begin with. Yeah. And so, so much legislation just never even gets heard because it's the, the, the principles they're found, the bills are founded on are illogical. Uh -huh. Anyway, yeah, so it's being a geek is fun. <laughs> and so, yes, and so you alluded to the election season that will change things within the Florida House and the Florida Senate. No one thinks it's, it'll change substantially to create an imbalance in the current majorities, the Republican majority in the mm -hmm. House and the Senate, but, but we, will, we will see new faces and um, we'll need to make new friends and to garner additional advocates for um, our issues because mm -hmm. FASL was planning to go back and ask for a recurring, a recurring funding for the $900,000 that we got during the regular session. And then we just, um, the new funding that we just received for home modifications, we'll hope to get that, if not more than that as well. Well, let's let, let's use that as a segue. So, uh, you know, part of this was going to talk about how the independent living networks really in an expansive phase. You know, I think expansion is is a good term for for how many of the centers are are feeling now. We're taking on new programs, new services, new opportunities, largely due to your efforts and and some some people in the independent living network and the backing and support of uh, legislatures. For two years now, we've got an increase in general revenue funding to support what we call adult transitions that can manifest into many different services or programs, but basically either preventing people to going into institutionalized care, such as living facilities, nursing homes, prisons, whatever it may be, or divert from ever going into the uh, institutionalized care. And so what we've done with our money is uh, we've really helped to expand our wheelchair ramp building program. Wow, that's huge. And we, we're doing modular reusable ramps. So when one ramp is done being used, we can reuse it for another place. Because like the list of people that need these wheelchair ramps, it's shocking. It's, it, it, I mean, so many people, more people need it than, than we can serve. And so we've really looked at this because for the people that we're putting these wheelchair ramps in, it's either get a wheelchair ramp or go into assisted living facilities. Right. And, and so we're able to get people a wheelchair ramp, reusable wheelchair ramp. So we're super excited. I know there's other centers doing incredible work with that general revenue funding. And then like this new funding that like literally days ago that we got notice on to do home modifications and how home modifications like wheelchair ramps are just such a needed service resource for people to stay in their homes. And so what a wonderful time for Centers for Independent Living to ensure that people can stay in the community to whatever extent possible through these new funding streams that we were so fortunate to receive. Yeah, no, it is a wonderful time. And it's a great testimony to this, the credibility of SILS, the reputation that they've been able to, you know, all, each of you has been able to establish over the past several years. So I mean, we, we went from getting no funding to this year, it'll be 1.395 million, um, which is like, we, I mean, that's, that's the most in, in new funding on top of your federal and state funding. That's the most we've ever gotten. So it is huge, but it really is a testament to the, the stature of the SILS and the way that you, you are each center in their communities is establishing your reputation and being reliable and dependable community resources. And we gained a new sponsor. This the funding request that we submitted was kind of a off thing. It's never happened before where the house appropriated an additional $175 million in the, in the general appropriations act for special projects on top of what was already appropriated, but you had to apply for the money and it was after the session ended. So I submitted an application on behalf of the SILs for this home modification funding and 971 requests were filed and the total 
of all the requests was over $800 million, so almost a billion dollars wow. for this small pot of 175 million. And the sills were selected, which is huge because we had so much competition from universities, from cities, from counties, you name it. There was the list of projects was completely across the board, diverse in every area. It's really, really exciting. And Representative Michael Grant is the one who filed our request for us. He's from um, down in the Gulf Coast area. We're hoping that next year or in the you know upcoming session, he'll become a good friend of ours and we can count on him to submit another request to continue that funding into the 22-23 fiscal year. That's awesome. And and tell me where I might be wrong here, but I feel like you know, the momentum in getting uh, this funding has been through a couple factors. I, I fully believe uh, you've been a person that already came into the position um, as director, you know, CEO of FASL, having these relationships, understanding how the system works, but being able to to learn and articulate the return on investment that Centers for Independent Living are able to return the state, you know, for every dollar that we get, you know, we're, we're giving back six by keeping people out of institutionalized care. Like it's far more expensive for someone to go in an assisted living facility than it is to provide a home modification and some grab bars or a roll-in shower or a wheelchair ramp uh, into people's homes and how life-changing those much more economical fixes are for their people and for their family and to keep the the diversity and the people in the community, which for the most part, people want to stay in the community are, you know, so I just feel like, you know, being able to articulate that message is now kind of catching, you know, some momentum and some inertia in this direction. Yes. So I'm the the tip of the spear, but there's a cascade from that because I come into someone's office, talk to them. They've never heard of a center for independent living before I leave their office. They Google it. And so when they Google it, a center for independent living comes up and each of the centers has, most of them have upgraded their websites over the past couple of years. So the pictures and the, and the consumer testimonials that legislators can see on your websites is huge. It's, it's not just one thing. It's not just one person. It's not just one meeting. And then the emails that the center sent to various legislators during the session, you know, asking for their support. But if, so there's your podcast. If someone Googles independent living, your podcast may come up. They may hear an episode and say, wow, this is really powerful. So it's a whole host of things. It's not just one thing, but everything is kind of building that tsunami of, of support and credibility that I think we're seeing come to fruition. But yeah, it's, you can have one weak link in your chain. And so if, if somebody Googles Center for Independent Living of, of Central Florida, and if, you know, if you go to their website, you see pictures of home modifications, you see people, people being helped, like mm-hmm. coming across the screen in photos, that's huge. If you saw an unprofessional looking website that didn't really provide any information and had broken links, and they'd say, well, these people are not really, you know, they're not, they're not really ready for action yeah. or they're not ready for prime time. So I think this, each of the SILs over the past several years have really increased their professionalism, their responsiveness, and their community networks. So people are talking about them. And I, I think that that's, that's huge. That's huge. All I do is I, I tap someone on the shoulder, but then when they turn around, they, they see the whole network. Awesome. You know, one of the other areas I think that we're really getting some momentum in is uh, the work that you've been able to really open some doors on regarding the uh, Florida Department of Corrections. And uh, if you want to kind of like give us a little bit of a brief history into where we are today um, with our efforts with that state agency. Well, that's where you get to tap on. You, I mean, you, you're the one who introduced me to a, a curriculum designer and the instructor, but this, was, this began as a conversation two years ago with the Department of Corrections talking about how the SILs could help with addressing some of the needs that they had because their workforce education was not accessible. They were, they were hit with a lawsuit, a, a, actually a judgment by a lawsuit that was filed by Disability Rights Florida and the Morgan & Morgan Law Firm. And so they, we offered to help them develop accessible training that every inmate is required to receive. In Florida law, it says that every inmate needs to receive 100 hours of employment readiness, tra- readiness training prior to release. And they did not have the ability to provide it, that 
same education to, to inmates with disabilities as inmates that didn't have disabilities. So thanks to Leslie Telg, who's an occupational therapist and a friend of yours and mm -hmm. on faculty at University of Florida, she was able to develop a trauma-informed curriculum designed for students with disabilities. And then you introduced me to Dr. Jacob Atem, who's a former lost boy of Sudan, who brings to the classroom a, a background in trauma himself, but also an understanding of, of how to deliver education effectively. So he took the curriculum that Lindsay designed and delivered it in three pilot sites in uh, at two at the Sewanee Correctional Institute and one at Columbia. And the inmate response and the institutional response was so positive that they've asked us to submit an application to have our training certified as an equivalent of the current training that's meeting the 100-hour requirement. So now if someone, if an inmate completes our training, that qualifies for the 100 hours, which is huge. Awesome. That was not something we planned on. So we're in the process of rolling out, moving from pilot to formal programs where the Centers for Independent Living will deliver the training under contract with the Department of Corrections. Lindsay, our instructional designer, she's going to be delivering a presentation on that at the Florida Occupational Therapist Association conference because it's been, you know, it's received such accolades. The Department of Corrections has submitted a proposal to deliver a, a presentation on this project at a national conference, a correction conference at the request of the conference planners because word is getting around around the country about what Florida's doing with Centers for Independent Living and the Department of Corrections. And then of course, we're gonna be delivering a training on this at the Independent Living Conference in October in Jacksonville. So this is just something that I'm not even sure how to explain how it all came about, but it was people, uh, several people who believed that we could do this work. We put our nose to the grindstone and, and plowed through three pilots and had, success with like we never imagined. So that's a huge thing. And it's a new area for SILS to move into. And like you said, we're in expansive mode now. This is territory that is unchartered, but we feel that the work that Lindsay and Jacob have done have you know shown us, have mapped out how to get there. And I, I just think that this is going to be um, a huge, a huge step in the right direction for SILS to establish, establish themselves with yet another state agency that we've never partnered with before mm -hmm. to show mm -hmm. our value, which will then, you know, state agencies answer to the governor. So who's ever in the, whoever's in the governor's office can see that Centers for Independent Living can provide value to returning citizens to reduce recidivism rates and to help them connect with employment once they are released. One other piece that's unique that we added um, to the program that makes this program specific for SILS, that the SILS are, have committed to providing, to doing two video phone interviews with the students, the inmates before they're released. We had a, a, young, a man who was being released to Jacksonville and he really wanted to become a commercial truck driver. Mm. So he had two video phone conferences with the Center for Independent Living in Jacksonville about housing, about you know all the resources that are there and how to get connected with a commercial driving license program. And that's really, really important because that's a warm handoff yeah. right now. When people are released from prison, they're given $50 in a bus ticket right. and told, you know, have a good life. The track record on the success of that approach is, is pretty um, dismal. So we think that this, just even before they get out, that they're already being set up by, by having a, a warm body talk to them about what's available to them in their community. And the the response I've heard from the students in the class has been so heartwarming, like literally bringing tears to my eyes when they tell you that, you know, I've been, in, I've been here for 20 years. This is the most hope I've felt in 20 years, wow. knowing that when I get out, I can, I know who to call and they can help me. They can't get everything for me, but they can tell me who to call to get set up for Medicaid or food stamps or, um, you know, all the various things that they might need. So it's, yeah, that's a huge, a huge new program. And Tony, I give you a lot of credit for making all those connections, using your relationships as to, you know, and so it's just layered relationships that have only gotten stronger over, over time through this project. And I really do think we have the ability to impact so many, so many inmates with disabilities who just want to go home and start life over mm. and have a chance at employment and success. For me, when I think about the independent living you know, it got started with the spirit of trying to get people with disabilities out of institutionalized care and back into the community. And I'm not sure like yeah, that prisons was the main 
institution that was conceptualized, you know, is mostly like, you know, 1973, there was probably a lot of, you know, long-term care facilities, uh, assisted living facilities, nursing, et cetera, deplorable conditions. And now I think there's a lot more awareness that, you know, our country in prisons per capita, I believe some of the, the highest population of its own citizens than any, almost any other country in a high, high percentage of the people that are incarcerated have disabilities. Yes. And what a wonderful opportunity for the Florida Department of Corrections to take, you know, a mistake, you know, not ensuring that all inmates have equal access to the employment readiness program. Okay. You know, that's a, that's a mistake and, you know, they're being held accountable for it, but to take that mistake, to learn from it and now pivot and, and do something truly innovative you know, to allow this opportunity to, to take place to, for the seeds to be planted and for uh, us to be nurturing it, to watering it, to cultivating it. And now look at what th this great opportunity to do more than anyone could have ever imagined. I really got to give a lot of hats off for the Florida Department of Corrections for being so open and willing to try something new that's way out of the box for them to be able to do and, and to, to be setting you know, these inmates up who have disabilities for success for when they get out. And employment certainly is a big part of this. And now to add, have this value added to add on to it to where like they inmates can be contacting resources in the community, aka Centers for Independent Living, to, to look at the other pieces that need to be put into place to prevent recidivism like housing right. and transportation or the other wraparound services that we can provide, or if we don't provide it, being able to link them into the resources or services in the community that can provide it. I mean, we are the land of second chances, idealistically. Yeah, no. And I think the most important lesson here to me is that this was a, a story of leveraging. The Department of Corrections didn't try to do this themselves. We introduced ourselves and said, we have this resource, it's statewide. These services are free. We can help you solve your problem. We're not here to tell you what you're doing wrong. We're here to help you find a solution. Right. So they leveraged the expertise that came from the SILs, and then you brought to bear the, the university system, other people in the community, because I didn't know how to build a curriculum. I didn't know how to write one. So we leveraged the expertise of a, a, an instructional designer. We leveraged the expertise of an instructor. So it wasn't that any one organization or agency tried to do it all themselves. It was a combination of multiple. And then once people are released, it's, it, it's then you know the handoff goes to the Center for Independent Living, who doesn't do everything. They'll say, mm -hmm. "Well, yeah, if you need to sign up for Medicaid, here's where you sign yeah. up." Or you know, if you need transportation, we don't provide it, but here you go here. So it's that's I think the the key thing because it's it's a juggling act for anyone to, to try to navigate social services in any community. Oh but, yeah. But this this multiple layers of leveraging only made everything stronger because the whole is definitely stronger. Or how does that work? Is I guess the sum of the parts yeah. is is greater than the whole, but yeah. but by everyone working together and and finding their niche where they could bring their expertise to bear on a solution, we wound up way better than we would have if any one of these entities had tried to do it on their own. Yeah, it feels faded, like it was meant to be, you know, in so many yes. different ways, the way that this is coming together, certainly, you know, believing and having faith, but doing the work like it's all in our own hands. And it definitely seems like the planets are lining up. I'm really glad to hear that people are going to be able to talk about this at state and you know national conferences to be able to you know tell this story. Because from you know, my understanding, and, but that's limited, this sounds like a very unique program. And it's kind of like, you know, now that we've gone through the pilot phase, now it's really an opportunity for us to level up. Now we're, we're, we're starting to get it to the, the graduate level, you know, so to speak. And you know, the advanced class yes. will now begin on this. And, and I'm so very excited for it and where, where it can take us all. But collaborations and synergy has yes. definitely been some yes. of the ingredients, I think, along the way here. So that brings me to my quote. All right. Quote us <laughs> up, Jane. I was a, you took the words right out of my mouth. I, I love it. Go. So this one comes from Benjamin Franklin, and it's diligence is the mother of good luck. And I think it's exactly what you just said, that it feels like it's faded, like it was just luck, but it wasn't. It was diligence. We all kind of worked really hard to try to figure it out. You know, we, we collaborated and we sacrificed and we, you know, we, we did the sweat equity, put the sweat equity into this project, into a, you know, to a, everything we've talked about so far. But it was diligence is the mother of good luck. Because things don't just happen. It's, you know, the right time, right place and the right people coming together and willing to 
work together for an outcome. And it just feels, you know, when, when we got our funding, it was kind of like, wow, how did that happen? But <laughs> there was a lot of work that went in along the way and it feels magical when it actually comes to fruition, but it's, it is, I do believe you can't underestimate the importance of diligence. So how would you say that diligence is manifested? So if diligence got us there, like what are the ingredients to apply diligence? I go back to the first part of our conversation. Diligence is keeping the end in focus uh-huh. so that you set aside sort of the, the non-essential non things along the way and you just keep focused on your goal and you're willing to you know, make those sacrifices, hold your tongue, lose the battles along the way to win the war. Mm. But yeah, diligence is just being uh, stubbornly committed to achieving a, a, a long-term goal and doing what, what it takes to get there. Steadfast. Yeah. Steadfast. Yes. Steadfast. Well, I really appreciate your diligence, your faith, your strategic inspiration that you have. Keeping the end in mind, the infinite game, Jane Johnson. Thank you so much. Oh, you know, I got my fix. Very <laughs> Very satisfying, oh, man, Jane. I'm so sorry. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was jonesing. Yeah, for sure. Geek time, geek time for Tony. Jonesing for Jane. That should be the name of this podcast. But uh, well, Jane, thank you for all that you're doing. It, it's a great orientation to to look about back where we've been, where we are, and where we're heading. It's very exciting and expansive times. Less than two months till the general election. So the wow. fun is just going to keep happening. Yeah, it's going to keep happening. And it's going to happen in a way that takes us all onward and upward. Thanks, Jane. Amen. Thank you, Tony. Thanks for listening to the Independent Life Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Independent Living of North Central Florida. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe. And if you know anyone who might benefit from listening, share this podcast and invite them to subscribe too. For questions, suggestions, or if you have a story you'd like to share, please email us at cilncf.org at gmail.com or call us at 352-378-7474. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, support, advocate, and empower each other to live the independent life.